This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, shelf for November 2022. I'm always tempted to make some sort of seasonal observation after noting the month, but seasons are so very contextual. Here in relatively coastal California, November means that tomato season is finally winding down to a close. And just this week, I decided it was time to change out the air filter in the heater and turn on the thermostat for the winter. What was my clue? Probably the layer of cats that I'd find myself buried under every morning. Okay, so two cats don't make much of a layer, but still. For me, the end of the year is either a chaos of traveling and events, or it's time to retreat to my introvert cave and try to recharge. There doesn't seem to be an in-between. This year, it's the introvert cave. No more traveling until, well, I'm not sure when. The next thing I have on my calendar is in July, but I'm sure something will come up. The wealth of virtual conferences that I can attend from my home office has changed the dynamic of thinking about book-related events. A few weeks ago, I was able to take part in an online mini-convention around sapphic speculative fiction, organized and hosted by Sheena Aberson of the Lesbian Review. Sheena has been doing some amazing things to support the lesbian and sapphic fiction community, and I always know when I'm invited to take part that it will be well-organized, well-run, and a joy to participate in. Even as many events are pivoting back to being in-person, or hybrid events that combine physical and virtual spaces, I think we've all realized the continuing potential for virtual events to expand our connections and to welcome those whose geographic or economic situation has historically restricted their access. With the end of the year coming around, I'm ramping up for cheerleading for the next year's fiction series. Once again, we'll be buying stories to air on the podcast. Please help spread the word to authors who might feel inspired to submit something for our consideration. This will be our sixth year airing fiction. Somehow, I keep thinking about the fiction series as being a recent addition to the show, but we've been doing fiction shows for two-thirds of the podcast's lifetime. I love being able to bring you new stories and to support the authors who are writing them. I hope you're enjoying them just as much. For the last month, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project blog has been doing something drastically different from our usual, publishing a translation of a historic document that sheds light on attitudes and beliefs around gender and sexuality in mid-18th century France. The legal appeal of Anne, or Jean-Baptiste, Rangine, against a charge of profaning the sacrament of marriage by being a woman married to a woman, raises questions about the interaction of legal, social, and internal gender identities, changing understandings of the relationship between gender and desire, and the challenges of interpreting even the most factual of documents when everyone involved has a vested interest in spinning those facts for their own protection and survival. 
have presented a couple of shorter texts in translation previously, but this is my most ambitious project to date in that field. I won't claim that the result would meet scholarly standards, but it's certainly been an enjoyable adventure. I'd like to return to blogging shorter journal articles for a while, though journal articles can be just as much work as entire books to turn into summaries. As my day job has shifted to including one day a week in Berkeley at the physical work site, it will be easier to spend some evenings at the UC Berkeley Library downloading material from JSTOR. The change in work schedule is adding an enjoyable variety to my schedule, though I'm glad I'll still be working from home for the most part. And now it's time for the new book listings. I'm already looking forward to my year-end analysis of trends in sapphic historicals because I've been noticing some trends on an anecdotal basis that I'd like to verify. One of those trends is stories set between the two world wars, whether you call it the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age, or the Lost Generation. I should do a special roundup of titles in that era at some point. The one October book I'm catching up on is set in that era. The Veronica Nash series by A.J. Matthews follows two British women through a series of mysteries. I hadn't identified the characters as sapphic previously due to the lack of any clear signifiers in the cover copy. But the eighth book, Death on the Rocks from Ecstasy Books, Inc., specifically mentions the couple being on a honeymoon, so you might want to circle back and start the series at the beginning. Death drops in. Veronica and Clara's delayed honeymoon on the French Riviera is interrupted when a man falls onto their beach. Did Hollywood mogul Solly Myers fall? Or was he pushed? He'd plenty of enemies, but negotiating the tangle of friendships and betrayals to uncover the truth is no easy task, especially after one fateful night in the casino. The November books don't include any particularly early settings, all from the Regency onward through the mid-20th century, and all set either in England or the USA, or a fantasy version of one of them. Her Vixen Actress, Ladylike Inclinations No. 2, self-published by Violet Cowper, is a working-class Regency romance with a lot of passion. England, 1782. Grace Dashwood longs to woo London's theatergoers, but the up-and-coming actress's glamorous good looks and sexy charm aren't enough to win her a place on the city's cutthroat stage. Until she meets an earnest lady playwright who has the connections she covets and a ravishing beauty she wants to explore. Frances Smith clings to her prim and proper manner. So the quiet writer's patience stretches to a breaking point with the red-headed whirlwind of a performer, even as she senses the first red-hot sparks of passion. But when she finally yields to the woman's dramatic pleas for aid, she's rewarded with a delectable kiss that leaves her aching for more taboo trysts. Shocked to have caught a wealthy man's eye, Grace can't bring herself to accept his patronage in the face of her unexplored desires, but Frances's fear of intimacy plunges the duo into an impossible limbo as she refuses to fully commit her emotions. Will their tangled connection get tied up in knots or weave a tapestry of happily ever after? There's something about the Regency era that inspires authors to toss magic into the mix. And Lady Liesel's Seaside Surprise, Teacup Magic No. 4, self-published by Tansy Rayner Roberts, offers a sapphic romance in a magical Regency series. I've been a fan of Tansy's work for quite some time, especially on the now-retired podcast Galactic Suburbia, and I'm very much looking forward to reading this story. Lady Liesel, fourth daughter of the Earl of Sandwich, 
always thought her fate was to marry well and live a perfect life like her older sisters. Now she's had a taste of rebellion, and she likes it. Hunting a missing diamond in a remote seaside town on behalf of a runaway countess, Liesel finds herself at the mysterious Aphrodite Villa, with a sinister lack of servants and no household magic in sight, not to mention a parlor full of wild bohemian artists, including the devilishly seductive Perdita. This is the Teacup Isles, where nothing is quite as it seems. Lady Liesel is about to uncover some surprising secrets about her family and herself. Due to the nature of source material on women who loved women in history, even writing something relatively biographical can require a lot of fictionalizing. That Dickinson Girl, a novel of the Civil War, Forgotten Women Number 1, by Joan Coster, by, from Tidalwaters Press, is loosely based on the life of a forgotten orator, feminist and lesbian, Anna Dickinson. This is the story of her rise to fame and fortune at the expense of love during the political and social turmoil of the American Civil War. 18-year-old Anna Dickinson is nothing like the women around her, and she knows it. Gifted with a powerful voice, a razor-sharp wit, and unbounded energy, the diminutive curly head sets out to surpass the men of her day as she rails against slavery and pushes for women's rights. There are only two things that can bring her downfall. The entangling love she has for her devoted companion, Julia, and an assassin's bullet. Forced to accompany the fiery young orator on her speaking tour of New England, Julia Pennington fights her growing attraction to the ever more impertinent woman. When a traitor sets out to assassinate Anna, will Julia risk her life to save her? There has long been a close connection between Gothic literature and queer-coded female characters. Now we can get stories where we don't need to rely on ambiguous coding, as in The Secret of Matterdale Hall by Marianne Ratcliffe from Bellows Press. Susan Motram lives an idyllic existence until her 18th birthday, when her father's sudden death plunges the family into penury. To support her mother and younger sister, Susan takes employment as a teacher at a remote Yorkshire boarding school, Matterdale Hall, owned by the radical Dr. Claiborne and his penny-pinching wife. Susan soon discovers that all is not as it seems. Why is little Mary so silent? What really happened to Susan's predecessor? Is anyone safe in the school's drafty halls? Through a life-changing meeting with the beautiful and mysterious Cassandra, Susan begins to uncover the truth about Matterdale Hall and discovers the cruelty and love that can lie within the human heart. One of the anecdotal patterns I've been noticing, though one that probably doesn't rise to the level of statistical significance, is for a romantic historic fantasy series where the second book features a female couple. This can create a dilemma for those of us with somewhat focused reading tastes. Read the series from the beginning to get the full setup? Or cherry-pick the book with the characters we find intriguing and hope we'll get the background from context? I tend to do the latter, I'm afraid. The latest series I've seen with this structure is A Restless Truth, The Last Binding, number two, by Freya Marsk from Tor.com. The most interesting things in Maud Blythe's life have happened to her brother Robin, but she's ready to join any cause, especially if it involves magical secrets that may threaten the whole of the British Isles. Bound for New York on the RMS Lyric, she's ready for an adventure. What she actually finds is a dead body, a disrespectful parrot, and a beautiful stranger in Violet Debenham who is everything 
a magician, an actress, a scandal, Maud has been trained to fear and has learned to desire. Surrounded by the open sea and a ship full of loathsome aristocratic suspects, they must solve a murder and untangle a conspiracy that began generations before them. Hot Keys by R. E. Ward from Bold Strokes Books is another jazz age romance, adding to my perception that we have a trend going on. In 1920s New York City, it's hard on the streets, but Betty Mae DeWitt and her best friend Jack Norville are determined to make their Tin Pan Alley dreams come true. Fate leads them to a speakeasy called the Trespass Inn, where people play fast and loose and criminals run the show. Betty and Jack are whisked into the glamorous and dangerous world of prohibition rum running, but fate has more in store for them than adventure. Romance blooms when a psychic medium's magic dazzles Betty, and a gangster infuriates and fascinates Jack all at the same time. But danger lurks in every alley. And with the trespass in under attack by rival gangsters, Betty and Jack will have to fight, not only for their hearts and dreams, but for their lives. I'm not entirely sure of the intended era for the historic fantasy, even though I knew the end, by C.L. Polk from Tor.com. The cover copy calls it a period piece, and some reviews mention the 1940s, so I guess we'll go with that. A magical detective dives into the affairs of Chicago's divine monsters to secure a future with the love of her life. This sapphic period piece will dazzle anyone looking for mystery, intrigue, romance, magic, or all of the above. An exiled auger who sold her soul to save her brother's life is offered one last job before serving an eternity in hell. When she turns it down, her client sweetens the pot by offering up the one payment she can't resist the chance to have a future where she grows old with the woman she loves. To succeed, she is given three days to track down the White City Vampire, Chicago's most notorious serial killer. If she fails, only hell and heartbreak await. And we'll finish up with another story from the 1940s, but purely historical this time. Enigma by Susie Clark from Bold Strokes Books. There is a time for courage a time for sacrifice, a time for love. In the fall of 1941, the United States Office of American Defense summons Agent Polly Sylvester to find an elusive spy. Critical information about aircraft designs, production numbers, and flight schedules vital to America's safety are being stolen from the Portage Aircraft Plant in Barberton, Ohio. And the spy is most likely a woman. Polly's orders are simple. Find the spy, whatever the cost or sacrifice. Polly has taken an oath to protect and serve her country, but the spy she's hunting may be the love of her life. Desperate times and impossible choices skew the line between what's right and what matters. Can Polly do what she must when everything is on the line? So, what have I been consuming lately? Audiobooks are dominating my list, although I did read a paper copy of P. Jelly Clark's The Haunting of Tram Car 15. It's a novella set in the same magical, alternate early 20th century Egypt as the novelette A Dead Jinn in Cairo, which I also listened to this month, and the novel A Master of Jinn, which I listened to back in May. The latter two feature special investigator Fatma El-Sharwi and her girlfriend, who, well, that would be a spoiler. Fatma will ensnare the heart of every reader who likes a dapper butch detective. I missed that aspect when A Master of Jinn came out last year and failed to include it in the new book listings. I also listened to the audio version of a medieval Arabic tale, The Tale of Princess Fatima, Warrior Woman, the Arabic epic of Dat al-Hima, 
translated by Melanie Magado. Despite the focus of the narrative on a supremely competent warrior woman who becomes the leader of her clan, defeating rival families and Byzantine crusaders alike, the story needs a lot of content warnings for misogyny, sexual coercion, and rape, and is just plain annoying relatives. But embedded within the historic context is a casual acceptance of fictional women warriors and of female same-sex desire, though the latter only gets a brief mention in passing. I also listened to a couple of short Audible original historicals. The Audible originals being free with the account means they don't have to work quite as hard to catch my attention. K.J. Charles offers her standard fare of gay male historical romance with a Regency set enemies to lovers caper in A Thief in the Night. I was a bit less enchanted by Sarah Page's Mrs. Wickham, which endeavors to redeem the character of the charming and amoral pair from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. The writing was okay, but I had a hard time buying Mr. Wickham's change of personality that was the core of the happy ending. I hope you enjoyed our most recent fiction episode, The Wolf That Sings on the Mountain, by Miyuki Jane Pinkard. The author is here to join us to talk about the story and her writing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story that was just aired last week and uh, your inspiration for it, anything else really interesting about the background? Yeah, so the story actually had a lot of different versions Previously, I think it took me a while to figure out what the kind of what I wanted to say with the story, but I had the setting really early on. The setting is sort of based in a um, medieval Japanese historical setting. In my mind, it's around the year like 1200. So it's around the transition time of the great kind of aristocratic powers to the rise of the sort of samurai and the warlord class, you know, the warrior class powers. And I also, I don't know if it's still present in the story, but I wanted a retelling of Snow White a little bit in it as well. So you've got, yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, I know it's it's been changed a lot since that, but that's where it started, where the young, you know, the new concubine that comes is the Snow White, right? And then the jealous stepmother character. So that's kind of where they came from. I was kind of riffing off of Cinderella and what if it, we said it in feudal Japan, you know, kind of kind of thing. And and I think I wrote the first version of this back in like 2017 and uh, sent it out a bunch of places and I kept changing it each time I got rejected. And I think what you see now is its final best version, obviously. But it did take me a little while to get there. And I think that's just a really interesting thing about the writing process. Yes. Sometimes when I write, I will keep a writing diary of how my ideas change just because I'm fascinated by that. So I'll I'll, I'll take notes of here is where I think the story is going right now. Or, you know, gosh, I just got this idea and it's going to change this aspect of it. It's really fun to go back later and trace that. That's such a great idea. I never thought of doing that. I haven't done it for, for everything. I did it for my the first novel I had published. And that is really fun to go back and read through. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I'm going to start doing that maybe. That's a great idea. So the silly question it would be, you know, why Japan? You were born in Japan. So um, I assume that that went into why this particular setting inspired you. Yes, absolutely. I was born in Japan. Half of my family is Japanese. 
I studied Japanese history in college and briefly went to a PhD program for it as well. I was not cut out for a PhD program in history, so I quickly learned my lesson and moved on to other things. But during that time, I really got fascinated with both kind of how similar, you know, when you grow up in, in North America, you're, you're steeped in this fantasy is always medieval Europe, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's very pervasive. And so I was very steeped in that. But, but then as I started studying history and Japanese history, I was struck by how similar and also different some of the tropes that we recognize from medieval history are. And I thought, wow, this is a really interesting field to explore, not just historically, but maybe also in fiction. And, and so that's kind of where it started, I think, for me. We're, we're going through something of a, I don't know, almost what, don't want to call it a renaissance because I, I don't know that we have had this before, but an explosion of fan, fantasy based in generally in Asian history. And I don't mean generally as in generically, but as in all over the place. Um, right. we've, got, we've got Indian inspired fantasy. We've got Chinese inspired fantasy. We've got Japanese inspired fantasy. And so much of it currently is being written by people whose cultural roots are in those cultures, which is really essential because otherwise you get Orientalism and and the, the objectification of the things that Western culture finds fascinating or different. Uh, and I really loved that that your story, you know, is coming out of the, the traditions and the tropes of Japanese history itself. Do you... I confess I'm not familiar with some of your other fiction. Do you tend to write with uh, inspirations from Japanese culture or is this just part of your palette? Um, that's a great question. I, I have more and more, I think, recently explored that. Um, I haven't always done so. I've written uh, contemporary things and I've written a couple of science fictional things, but I think more and more I am interested in understanding how do we establish a sort of a new grammar of fantasy when we take away the medieval Europe grammars that we're so familiar with. And I just find that very, very interesting. So I think I, I think just for myself, I, I enjoy exploring that. Uh -huh. Why don't you tell us about some of the, the other stories you've had published? Yeah, sure. So I've got a couple stories out in Uncanny Magazine. One is a contemporary fantasy that's actually sort of based around a Vietnamese immigrant experience. So it's not it's not Japanese, but it does actually map very emotionally to my experience growing up as a semi-immigrant, I guess, in, in the United States. And that one's called A House Full of Voices is Never Empty. And that's an Uncanny magazine. Another one that I wanted to highlight also in Uncanny is I recently published a novella there called Radcliffe Hall, which is my take on a gothic horror novella, but it's set at a girl's um, or a women's college in northeastern United States, but it also has a Japanese protagonist who's traveled to the U.S. for the first time to attend university. And, and so she's a fish out of water and also there's ghosts. So it is it a reasonable guess that uh, given the, the sort of pun in the name that it also has sapphic elements? Yes, absolutely it does. <laughs> 
Yes, she, uh, you know, I think there's something about this, like all women's environment, young women, right? You know, their first time leaving the home and they're discovering each other and themselves. They're also discovering who they are as people. Um, and I find that such a electric space to explore, including sort of sexuality and romance. So you co-founded something called the Story Kitchen Studio, which is uh, it says a community for exploring writing techniques. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's because I used to work with Maureen McHugh, also a writer, and we worked together at a university where we were both teaching and we would get together for lunch and we would end up just talking about writing and technique and process all the time. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of community or a collective where we could talk about this with ourselves and other people as well. So that's kind of where it started. And we also realized that we still find that um, we get a lot out of classes and practice. You know, when you think about, well, uh, we were talking about you're playing the harp earlier. And when you think about music, even accomplished professionals still practice every day, right? Absolutely. And same with dance. Professional ballet dancers go to dance practice every day and do all of that. So we thought, what if we had something like that for writing? No one, no one really, as far as I'm aware, thinks of doing sort of writing exercises, sort of practice in writing, even if you're professional and published and so on. So that's kind of where it started. I have to say, we've both become a little too busy to really work on it, you know, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, but we still get together and, and talk about writing and we have a discord and we occasionally run classes. I think Maureen just uh, wrapped up a class right now that she's running and they're focused on like writing exercises. Uh -huh. Well, projects, projects have their own life cycle. And, and just because a project is, is working really well at one stage doesn't mean it's going to stand still. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's nothing to be, be sad about necessarily. Everyone moves on to the next stage in their development sometimes. So are there any upcoming projects that you're able to talk about that you want to tell the listeners? Yes. Although I don't know exactly when it's coming out, but I will be in an anthology edited by Jonathan Strahan called The Book of Witches. And it is coming out on Harper Voyager, I want to say 2024, maybe. Uh, traditional publishing has such a long lead time. I'm always totally uh, unsure of the year, but uh, maybe late 2023, maybe late next year or early 2024, but it is a an anthology. I looked at the table of contents and I was astonished that I got to be on this table of contents with all these people. Um, it's called The Book of Witches and it's all about witches and witchcraft from around the world. So I think that's super, I'm very excited for that. That sounds great. So is there anything that you have read, watched, consumed otherwise recently that you would love to tell the listeners about? Yeah, so I've read two things that I want to talk about. One is a really great craft book by Gail Carringer. She's the one who wrote the Parasol Protectorate series, which are delightful and really and I, fun. I know what book you're about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you know this book, uh, The Heroine's Journey. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just thought it was great because she takes this sort of idea of the hero's journey, which I have always had a problem. I don't know about you, but I've always had a problem with it. I think it works for some people. It never worked for me. And it felt way too reductive given the incredibly vast diversity of stories that are out there. I was like, how could they all be the hero's journey? So the heroine's journey I found to be a really practical, for me at least, a really practical way of rethinking things like the structure of the story and how to think about your your turns and your plots. And you know, I, just, I, I just found it really, really cool. So I'm excited to apply that to the next story. So when I was doing research for Radcliffe Hall, not only did I look at things like uh, accounts of being in college. Oh, it's historical also. It's set in 1908. So I looked at uh, university materials, you know, like materials that they create for students to welcome them to colleges. So I looked at some of those things and archival things, and I read a lot of Gothic novels. And there's an old one that I found really, really interesting. It's by Iris Murdoch. It's called The Unicorn. Have you read it? You're nodding like you have. Recognize the author. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so it's set in the 60s. And it's a really interesting psychological gothic story where nothing supernatural happens. And yet, she's able to evoke that sense of creeping dread and danger that I think a good gothic novel has. And I was just very curious about how she managed to do that with no ghosts and nothing supernatural. It's all just the people themselves are the source of the dread. And I thought that was really cool. Plus, you have to have a big spooky house or, you know, I think that, too, is an ingredient in Gothic literature. You have to have a, in my case, it was a spooky college campus, but you have to have some spooky environment. You have to have a space that's large enough to contain the unknown. Yes. Oh, I love that. I, yes. I love the way Gothic you phrase that. In a, in, a, in a studio apartment. No. Although now that you say that, I'm, I'm like... Is that a challenge? Shall we, shall we try? <laughs> it is. So if people wanted to find you online and follow your social media, where should they look? Sure. I have a website. It's miyukijane.com, M-I-Y-U-K-I-J-A-N-E.com. I am still on Twitter as of today. Who knows how much longer, but that's at miyukijane. And my Instagram is also at Miyuki Jane, but that's mostly dog photos. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, telling us about your writing and your projects. Heather, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 